right, and we're rolling, man. What's going on, brother? Nothing much. It's been a good, productive day. How about yeah. you? Yeah, no, same here, man. It's been pouring, raining cats and dogs over here, so yeah, been getting all kinds of leak calls and all kinds of stuff. Same, same here. Um, came through is pretty stormy and, and rainy. A couple hours ago, it's kind of passed through now, but uh, had the fireplace going for a little bit. You know, we don't get very many cold days where you can turn the fireplace on, so I was enjoying that a little bit earlier. So nice, man. Yeah, very cool. Well, guys, for all y'all out there who uh, don't know, I'm, I'm I've got Sean Hodge on here, and uh, really excited to have you on, brother. And really appreciate you taking the time and jumping on with me. Uh, absolutely, anything I can can do to try to share information, I'm, I'm happy to do so. And um, been excited about hopping on the the cast with you. So I'm glad today's the day. I know, man, and you're uh, you're one of my first guinea pigs. So the uh, you know my wife and I've been talking about doing this for a while so it's been a little daunting trying to get everything together how you want to do it but it's, i think it's pretty cool that you're one of my first ones to come on so well good hopefully we can you know set the bar high out of the gate so, yeah right <laughs> yeah <laughs> well man uh for those who don't really know you want you tell me a little bit about who you are and and um you know about your firm and all that kind of stuff sure so uh sean hodge uh hodge law firm uh, my firm specializes in fighting insurance companies. We hold insurance companies uh, accountable. Uh, that usually means uh, claims related to property damage, everything from hurricanes to hailstorms to tornadoes. Uh, we do every type of property damage from residential claims to commercial claims. And so we've been specializing in this for over 15 years now. Um, besides myself, we have 12 other attorneys on staff and, and support staff in addition to that. So we we hold insurance companies accountable nationwide. And so we we fight them in a lot of different states. Nice, man. How, how many states are y'all in? Um, I've litigated now. I think we're up to like 43, 44 states that I've actually handled claims in. Um, regularly, we're practicing in about 10 to 15 states. Um, but it, it all kind of it makes sense if it's a large enough claim, I'll, I'll litigate it in any state. But primarily, um, we're doing Texas, Louisiana, Florida, Colorado, Maryland, Illinois, um, Idaho, Nebraska, Montana. So um, it, it kind of varies month to month, but those are kind of the, the main ones we're practicing. Well, I'm sure uh, you don't have much business at all in Florida, right? No business at all in Florida or or Louisiana for that that fact um so um both states have been pretty busy the past couple of years with storms and so yeah we uh, we're gearing up over there um in addition to all the other cases we're handling from the past storms in in the past couple of years in Louisiana and Florida so well so and i know you got a pretty interesting past too i mean where where did you kind of come up through you know when you kind of start before you started your own firm and you know what was kind of your history coming up through through law sure so i'll kind of break it down kind of pre-law and then and then after i, I became an attorney so I'd, i've been chasing storms for over 20 years now um I'd, originally i worked for a uh, a nationwide debris contractor they were kind of a logistics company but they are the first responders going in and contracting with the city and the county to go in and open the roads, remove the debris, pick up all the, everything that gets thrown around after a hurricane or, or tornado. So 
I would go in and be there usually about 48 hours before landfall with the, the mayor or the county judge or other elected officials, ride out the storm with them, and then immediately start coordinating the response. And, you know, we would do an initial push trying to open up major arteries to hospitals and, you know, emergency facilities, police stations. Um, and then once that initial push was done, we would start coordinating sometimes thousands of uh, dump trucks and other uh, equipment, sometimes tens of thousands, depending on the storm. So we would grid off the city and start picking it up grid by grid. And so I, I did that, um, wrote out, I think about 16, 17 different storms um, where I flew in the day before I was there, wrote it out with the elected officials. And that was that was fun, that was exciting, but certainly not something that would be conducive to what I want to do long term, which was get married and have a family. So, um, when chasing I storms to, doesn't uh, doesn't lead to a healthy marriage and uh, and raising kids and all that kind of stuff, does it? No, it can it can be uh, pretty difficult. And I mean, I I still chase storms to an extent, um, you know, through the law firm, but it's not like it was when I was there for you know six months, nine months straight after an event, you know. Uh, now I handle the lawsuit and that involves travel and a lot of work and, um, but it's, it's not the same as living on the road out of a hotel for six months straight. So, yeah. yeah I, so, uh, after, after I decided, you know what, I, I want to get out of that initial practice. Um, that was fun. I, I worked my way up and became their general counsel for that company for a while. Um, and then I decided, you know, I'm going to go open my own law firm. I had a, buddy, uh, an attorney that um, was really my mentor, really got me interested in in the law. Uh, and I still do some cases with him and still work with him occasionally. Um, but I'll, I'll never forget. He, I told him I'm going out on my own. I'm going to open my own firm. And he said, that's great. You always have a position in my firm and I'll give you a year before you're starving. And then you want to come back and you can join my firm at, at that point in time. So I uh, always remind him of that. That's just kind of a <laughs> a little bit of something that kind of lit the fire underneath me. Uh, you know, I'm going to prove him wrong. That's not going to happen. So um, I opened my own firm over 15 years ago and haven't looked back since. So That's awesome, man. Yeah, yeah I, I think knowing some of your history, I, I know I think you're a lot more um, well-versed in kind of the processes from beginning to end when these storms hit. And mm -hmm. I think it gives probably your clients some and people that are listening some um if they ever had any reservations about having some pencil pusher behind a desk that has never, you know, been boots on the ground, but that's not the case with you and, and your guys. Yeah. And every claim that comes in is, is an important claim. You know, at, at our law firm, I say there are no claim numbers, right? We represent insurers. We represent our clients. You know, we represent Mrs. Johnson and I can tell you about Mrs. Johnson's claim. And so when I have an insurance company that calls up and wants to spout off a claim number to me, I say, I, I don't know what you're talking about. You know, I don't track things within my system that way. I have individuals, I represent individuals, and we want to convey their story and, and tell their story. But, you know, two different types of clients. You know, I have clients that have, you know, every client has a serious claim, but half the clients have roof damage. And while it's a nuisance and something they want to get fixed and they want to get repaired, they're still able to live in their home, right? So they're, they're not displaced. 
they have damage to their property and they want to get paid for for what they you know paid their premium for. They want the insurance company to live up to their end of the bargain. Uh, but then I got to have about half my clients, uh, especially when it comes to tornadoes and, and major hurricanes um, that are in a different boat altogether. You know, they're displaced. They're not in their home um, because of the catastrophic event that that occurred. And so those clients, I think, really want somebody that understands what they've gone through. Right. Well, I haven't been through this particular storm you're facing. I've been there. I I know what you're going through. I know what you're facing. Uh, and I've been through some major losses myself as far as, you know, gutting our house a couple of different times for, for different events. And so I know it's not a fun process. So, um, you know, I think at the end of the day, clients want their case resolved. They want to make their, you know, be made whole, put their lives back together. But there is a lot of clients that um, do need some support emotionally going through this process and being able to talk to them and let them know this is the path forward, trust in the process. Here's what we're going to do. Um, I think they like to hear that. Yeah. Well, and I've noticed too, that, you know, as I've longer, longer, I do this, the more, you know, cause in DFW, we're not going to get a lot of these claims that are, you know, necessarily like a hurricane, but you know, we get the busted water pipes, we get the fires. So there are some, there are quite a few that, you know, where somebody's going to be displaced, but um, you know, there's a lot of people that have reservations about hiring a lawyer because, you know, hail damage to their roof. If it's not, you know, a huge leak, that's some waterfall in their living room. So, you know, I've found that I've had to kind of talk people through that a little bit that, you know, it doesn't matter if your claim is, you know, 30,000, 40,000, $50,000, or if it's a $500,000 loss, you know, there's still going to be times where you may have to have a lawyer involved. And so getting people to understand like, Hey, you don't have to be displaced out of your home to justify, you know, passing this off to somebody like you. Right. Absolutely. And, you know, of all the, the clients um, that come in, well over 95%, this is their first time to ever be involved with the legal process with a lawsuit. You know, these are not people that are out there not just with insurance. <laughs> right. Yeah. I mean, it's, you know, 95% of the time, they've never been involved in a lawsuit um, and they didn't take this decision lightly hiring an attorney, um, but they were left with no other option. You know, if the insurance company had paid what they owed on the claim, then the clients wouldn't be calling, you know, and at the end of the day, it's, it's not hard to put me and other attorneys that, that do first party cases out of business. Um, if the insurance companies were not screwing the insured, if they were not underpaying the claims, then they wouldn't have ticked off homeowners that would be calling and, and wanting us to pursue the claim for them. So, um, you know, I like to think I'm a good attorney, but it's, it's not that difficult when uh, the insurance company is essentially leaving the insured no other choice, right? Yeah. You have no other choice but to file suit to collect what you're owed. And, and it's a shame it's gotten to that point uh, because 25, 30 years ago, I don't think it was. Um, insurance companies, they may underpay the claim, but you didn't get as many denials. You didn't get as many just below deductibles as you get now, right? Yeah. And so they've really weaponized the claim process where they're just trying to throw as many roadblocks in front of the insured as they can, dragging the process out as long as they can. Because at the end of the day, I think most insurance companies have designed their claim process to frustrate the insured so they give up. Yeah. And, you know, that's, that's terrible to, to say, but... 
looking at the way they adjust claims now and what's going on with the adjusters and the engineers they use, um, they've designed the entire process just to try to get the homeowner frustrated and give up. Yeah. Uh, it's it's a common feeling that I come across in a lot of these files. And, you know, I, I sometimes I don't get involved until six months, one year later after a loss happens. And, you know, they, they want it done quick. And it's like, guys, just because I'm involved doesn't mean that a switch is going to get flipped. And if anything, there's even more delay tactics when somebody like me gets involved. And um, if they didn't do the right thing to begin with, you know, don't be surprised if they don't do the right thing right after we get right after I get involved. And I think um, that's kind of a good mindset that I'm trying to get people to understand um, whenever I get hired is to have them understand that, look, you guys have a contract with the carrier and this contract has terms, conditions, there's restrictions that are regulated by the state. And it's to my surprise when I first became a PA that people didn't look at things like that. And I myself didn't look at that when I was a contractor and once you start looking at this in terms of guys, there's a legal agreement here. They have to do things within a certain amount of time. They have certain things that they have to do that are regulated by the state. And there's actually things that you have to do as a homeowner. And they're relying on the fact that you don't know what those are. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, and that's kind of where I wanted to have you on and really dig into some of that stuff because, you know, you're the one who looks at these contracts on a daily basis because, you know, you told me your firm, y'all don't do, you know, criminal, y'all don't do, you know, these other kind of cases and y'all dabble in first party insurance. You know, your whole firm is dedicated to this. So y'all deal with this on a daily basis. So I know you have a really good way of explaining, you know, what, and if we can maybe start with some of those duties after loss and what that really means and why a homeowner, you know, needs to be aware of them. Sure. So I I think if you talk to most homeowners, um, the perception is they have insurance, and so their duties are essentially to notify the insurance company they have a loss, and that's the end of it, right? Let me just call my insurance company, tell them I have damage, and then the insurance company will take care of the rest. But that's not true. Um, if, if you look at the policy, every policy has insured duties after a loss. Okay, So that's the duties that the homeowner or the property owner has to fulfill, and you look at the timelines and the deadlines under the state law, many of those timelines and deadlines for the insurance company to act, to let's say accept coverage or make a payment are not even triggered until the homeowners go, goes through and completes all the duties after a loss, okay? That initial duty reporting the claim is one of the duties, right? But that doesn't stop, okay? You have further duties beyond that So you have to report the claim. You have to try to mitigate further damage from occurring, which means you have to protect your property. Um, That could be putting a tarp on your house after a windstorm or or hailstorm comes through. Um, But you also have to make your property available for inspection. And there's a, a, a mechanism called a proof of loss that needs to be filled out and completed. Until that's actually submitted to that form is submitted to the insurance company, Anything they pay you is really them doing it voluntarily. Hmm. Now, a lot of times they will open up coverage. They will make payments without you complying with every duty after a loss. But if you don't comply with every duty after a loss and you're not happy with what they pay you at the end of the day, that claim's not set up properly to go to a lawsuit. And so 
complying with those duties is, is very important. And the duties have become, you know, more exhaustive, more detail now than they used to be. And so you really need somebody assisting you as a homeowner, um, like a public adjuster, to help make sure that you're complying with those duties and that you can check that box that, yes, you did that. Um, so that the ball is in the court of the insurance company at that point, and you've complied with all your duties. Yeah. Well, and I think the carrier, just like you said, they've strategically set up this process a certain way, right? So they, for example, your agent, they don't have a certified copy of your policy at, on hand, and they, they don't have a copy of it that they can send you. They have to submit a request, and typically the only person that is able to do that is actually the people in the claims department anyways. They're the only ones that typically have a copy of it that they can send. And so how are you supposed to abide by duties after loss when you don't have a certified copy of your policy? You don't know what those terms are, right? So that in, a, in and of itself seems like it's really one-sided and the, the homeowner's already at, in a losing situation. So, um, you know, in my mind, I, I, if I were a homeowner, first thing I would do as soon as I sign on the dotted line is I want a certified copy of my policy. And, um, you know, and, and just like what you were saying with your, their duties after loss, I think there's two really strong implications that happen. One, the carrier can not extend coverage. And then two, you actually don't have the ability to sue the carrier unless you've abided by your duties, right? Correct. Yeah. You, you can't bring a lawsuit until you've complied with all your duties. And so that's one of the first things we look at when a case comes in. Can we move forward with filing a lawsuit because has the public adjuster or has the homeowner already complied with those duties or is there still things that need to be done before we can get to that point? So, I mean, if you look at insurance policies in, in general, 20, 30 years ago, most states had a prescribed policy, right? There's standard fire policies um, and there's, you know, different types of, of policies, but you had one of three or four different types of policies and they provided pretty standard language on the coverages, regardless of what insurance company you purchased it from, right? And it was 15 pages long, you know, still had to read through it, but you pretty much knew what your coverage was after you read through that, okay? A lot of states have deregulated it now so that there is no standard buyer policy the insurance company, you know, all state wants their policy. They can go write their policy and sell it. And State Farm can sell theirs and farmers can sell theirs. And so now it's not, you know, a standard policy in Texas. You have hundreds and hundreds of different policies, you know, over a thousand different policies now that are being sold in Texas. And the same for every other state. And so those policies have become a lot more, you know, fine print in them, a lot more exclusionary languages in them. Uh, changing coverages so that it's very hard to even know what coverage you have, even when you have a certified policy in front of you, unless you're an attorney, unless you're a public adjuster, um, because coverage that's given to you on page five of your policy may be taken away on page 95 of the policy, you know, under an endorsement or some um, add-on to the policy. So it's become very difficult to know what coverages you have. And so it's really important for homeowners to, you know, have a certified copy of the policy, but sit down and, you know, get with a public adjuster and, and or somebody that can explain what's going on with the policy, what coverages they have. Because I have people call me every day that say, 
you know, I thought I had coverage for this, but the insurance company is telling me I don't. And so those policies have really gotten a lot more onerous language in them now. It's a lot more difficult to understand, just like the, the standard agreements you see when you go buy a, a car or a cell phone or you go sign up for a Facebook account, right? Those terms and conditions that you, you scroll down to the bottom and you click accept, um, it's that much and even more so when it comes to insurance policies, right? It's, it's very voluminous. It's a lot of detail, a lot of information. And those policies have gotten a lot more difficult to understand the past decade and a half. Yeah. And, you know, I've talked to guys like um, David Dvorak and and some guys over at DCC over in Fort Worth. And uh, the guys over there actually have a pretty um, they, they did some studies and they have some cool graphics that show, you know, what the average reading level is of just in, any citizen in the United States. And then they put together what the reading level is of the policy language uh, inside of a policy. And it's much higher than what the average reading level is of the average American. So um, you're again, already a step behind, right? One, you don't have the policy to begin with. And then two, it's written in a language that's very difficult to understand. And just as you mentioned, there's endorsements that are added on to the end that make amendments to the con to the uh, policy, the things that'll take away coverage. And then another endorsement's added that'll give it back. Um, it, it can be very confusing. So no, I'm in agreement with you that, you know, having somebody like a public adjuster that can sit down and read through it with you and make sure every, everything's, you know, on the up and up and everybody understands where they're at is really important. But, yeah. um, uh, and it, I think it's really important too, when they're purchasing the policy for the homeowner to, to talk and communicate with their agent or their broker and actually put things down in writing, you know, put it in an yeah. email to them because a lot of people just go to their agent and say, give me a good policy, right? Mm -hmm. Well, a good policy is going to vary depending on who's selling it to you and, and what product they're trying to sell. So, you know, you want to have replacement cost value instead of actual cash value in your policy. And you need to specifically ask for things like that. You need to document that in writing. You know, I want a replacement cost policy. Um, and there's, you know, a lot of different things that um, you need to be specifically asking for and putting it in writing so that your agent does go out and you give them some direction on what type of policies you want to get. Most homeowners just don't know, but if they would spend a little bit of time meeting with their agent, kind of going over it, meeting with, you know, uh, a public adjuster, an attorney, and just finding out, you know, what some good coverages I need, what coverages do I need to stay away from? Um, that helps a lot because if they're at the end of the day, if there's no coverage under the policy, there's no legal argument we can make for coverage then it's too little too late, you know, at, at that point in time, you know, the coverage is what it is. Um, and so I would definitely recommend everybody start reviewing your policies, have a conversation with your agent and document that conversation in writing um, because you want to make sure that you're getting the coverages that you think you're actually getting in place. Have you ever had a case where, you know, the homeowner says, Hey, I want this type of stuff, or they were maybe told that, yeah, you have this, and you were able to actually go back and reference that in an email, but the policy didn't end up having it for some reason. Are you able to kind of backtrack and put that liability back on the agent for not putting that coverage in or making them believe that they did? You can, but I'm generally... Sure I'm sure that's a long shot. Hail Mary, but... That's correct. I mean, that that's usually 
you know, the, the fallback position when there is no coverage under the policy. And now you're just looking for, is there any way that somebody is responsible for this, right? Uh, some third party. So at, I, I had a claim that we settled out last year where it was a, a, a owner owned about 45 uh, residential properties. He switched over from one insurance company to another. And he told his adjuster, or I'm sorry, he told his agent, that he wanted coverages that matched the coverages he had in place. And he specifically asked for replacement cost coverage. Um, coverage was, was bound with a new insurance company. He had a claim um, after the 21 uh, freeze and he had a number of properties he had to file claims on. Come to find out, they were all ACV policies. So after we settled out with the insurance company on an actual cash value basis, we were able to go after the agent because we had specific documentation where he requested that the, the coverages match what coverages he had in place. And he said he wanted a replacement cost policy. Um, if you have that, then yeah, there's liability for the agent and you can go after the agent um, and you can prevail in, in those cases. But usually you don't have that documentation. Usually yeah. the homeowner just said, well, I told my agent to give me good coverage and they didn't tell me it had, you know, this cosmetic damage exclusion or it didn't have this replacement cost coverage or, you know, whatever coverages you're warning under the policy. The courts are usually not going to hold the agent responsible unless you have some specific documentation of what type of coverage you're asking for and the agent failed to get you that specific type of coverage. You know, if you're just kind of having a generic get me good coverage or get me full coverage, um, then the courts are going to say that's not sufficient usually to hold the agent accountable to it. Now, you know, of course, that varies state to state. and um, But usually agents don't have a lot of liability unless you have some good documentation on what you ask them to get for you. Yeah. And, you know, kind of going back to some of the duties after loss, um, you know, there's a couple that, I see that homeowners tend to violate quite often. And I'll get the one that I see the most is denying access to the property. So there are stipulations in the policy that require you to allow the carrier as often as reasonably necessary to come out and inspect the property. And there's a lot of times that the adjuster comes out, they give a denial, things get heated. Um, you know, the adjusters, acting like a fool or the homeowner is being, you know, really difficult to deal with and, you know, emotions just flare. Right. And yeah. I've seen that happen more often than not, because it's their, their property, it's damaged. They're expecting the carrier to come through. The carrier doesn't for whatever reason, and it can make emotions kind of get high sometimes. And what I've seen homeowners do is they just kind of go, well, you know, screw you. You're not coming on my property any, anymore. And um, you actually can't do that. And there's a lot of times that the contractor has an issue with somebody coming out um, or you, they try to coordinate and they said, nobody's stepping foot on my property without this person here. So I think it might be a good idea to hear from you exactly what a homeowner can and can't do in regards to allowing access. Can they say, yeah, you can come, but you have, you have to be a, you know, escorted by this individual on my property, whether that's a contractor or whoever else. You know, can you kind of walk through what some of those things? Sure. Yeah. You, you have to provide them 
access to the property to conduct an investigation. And um, in a few minutes, we can talk about, you know, disposing or getting rid of contents or other things prematurely, um, because that happens a lot too, um, that, that violates the terms of the policy. But if you have property damage, you're correct. The policy usually says as often as we reasonably request access or as often as we request an inspection, right? It has to be reasonable. It can't be done, you know, for harassment purposes. You know, so if they're coming out 30 times and they're wanting to inspect, that's probably not reasonable. But as long as they're wanting to come out for a second or third or potentially fourth inspection, then you should be granting access to them. Okay, That should be reasonable in light of the facts of your claim. Uh, and you should allow them in that access. If you just arbitrarily cut it off and say, no, you can't come out, then you could be violating the policy. You could be violating your duties after a loss, which means that you've actually, in essence, breached the contract. And if you breach the contract, um, you may not be able to sue them or hold them accountable for any, any damages on the claim that maybe they rightfully owed you, but they don't owe you any longer just because you breached the contract. You arbitrarily cut them off and did not give them access to it. Now, I do, now that access should be reasonable. I represent a lot of school districts um, where sometimes they have property damage claims. Obviously, we can't have people coming into an elementary school without providing notice and providing identification and coordinating all that. And so, you know, I need a week's notice or something like that to coordinate that with the school district and we can do background checks and, and things of that nature um, before they, they gain access. So, you know, a request for access to your property, even if it's just your home, it should be done on a reasonable basis. The insurance company shouldn't be saying, hey, we'll be there at five o'clock and it's 2.30, yeah. right? So they should be coordinating with you as long as they're providing reasonable notice, uh, you know, a, a, couple days ahead of time, three days ahead of time before the inspection, then you should be providing access as best you can. And if you can't provide them access because maybe you're working or not available for whatever reason at that time, then you should be not telling them no, but offering them alternative dates or times. Well, I think that's the key thing because I've heard several times of people that say no because my contractor can't, you know, you want to come on Monday, my contractor can't be there until Wednesday I need you to be there on, on Wednesday. And I know that a lot of these adjusters try to avoid contractors on purpose. So, you know, they may get a notification to the homeowner late on a Friday or on a Saturday, Hey, I'm going to be at your house at, you know, 8 AM Monday, or they give 24, 48 hours notice of showing up. And, you know, in those circumstances, does the homeowner have the right to say, you know, no, like I, I really need, I really need to be there to grant you access, or I really need this individual to be there with you. Do you have the ability to say, no, Monday's not going to work. Don't show up here on Monday, but let's work out an alternative time. Yeah, you, you do. You just don't want to have a, a hard no, you can't inspect, right? Gotcha. You want to, and it, it would be helpful, not required, but helpful to kind of explain maybe why you're not available. You know, I'm, I'm working at that time or only I'm, you know, children will be home and, you know, they can't, you know, I can't have people coming in if you have somebody under 18 um, that's home by themselves. And so, um, yeah, it, it happens. I see it. I have clients call me, you know, usually things go through us because it's in a lawsuit at that point in time or, you know, we're handling it and coordinating it. But sometimes I have 
you know, past clients that will call me on a new claim and say, hey, the adjuster says he's going to be here Monday morning and it's, you know, Friday at 530 when they send out the notice, right? Um, that's not reasonable, right? They, they should give you um, at least two to three business days notice before they're going to be showing up for an inspection. Now, if you've canceled three or four inspections and every time they, they give you available times and dates, you keep saying no to it, then you could get into a point where you're starting to breach your contract, right? So you want to work together and try to provide access as soon as you can. Um, but it, it's reasonable to try to work with them on, on dates and timing of that inspection. I gotcha. Um, I had a question for you in terms of like checks that are given by the carrier. So I've had numerous times as a contractor and then as a PA that prior to my involvement or while, you know, I prior to them bringing me in as a contractor or as a PA, you know, they had a frustrating experience. The adjuster, you know, was a dick or in their eyes, or they didn't give what they were supposed to give uh, or what they thought that they were owed. And they get some check that's, you know, it's a $80,000 claim and they got a check for like three grand. Right. And they're really upset about it. And I hear quite often that they go, well, I just, I didn't even cash check. I told them to take it back. I told them to take that money back. I'm, I'm not accepting it. Are, are there any implications of them or any consequences of them not taking that check or them saying, Hey, I don't, I don't approve this money that you gave me. I, I just want, I want to know if homeowners need to be careful on what they're saying in those circumstances. I understand the frustration, but you're yeah. owed that ACV money, regardless of whether you do work or not. So I tell everybody cash check and there's, there's right. you're not agreeing to anything. You're, you're not finalizing and saying, Hey, yeah, I agree. This is the final numbers. Um, but are there any implications of them denying a check or trying to send it back to the carrier or telling them to take it back? Yeah, I mean, that's a, a common problem out there. And, you know, it's one of the things we do in on the you know onboarding process. When we have new clients come in, you know, do you have any checks that you have not cashed? If so, send them to us and we'll get them reissued so you can go cash it, right? Uh, cashing the check is not going to close your claim. It's not going to settle your claim or resolve your claim. Cash the checks, right? Now, if you get a check that the insurance company shouldn't be doing this, but if you get a check that does say something such as full and final settlement on it, or it's actually written yeah. on the check itself and something of that, you're not going to see that very often, but if you do see that, then yeah, you probably want to consult with an attorney before you cash that check. But otherwise, those funds that most homeowners get are called undisputed funds, right? Where the insurance company owes you this much, doesn't mean you agree with it by cashing the check. You can still keep fighting on for the rest that you're owed. Um, but yeah, cash the check, get the money in, and you can use that money to mitigate your damages, do some temporary repairs, or or do whatever you need to do with it. Don't hold on to the checks. Well, and that's actually a good segue because the next one that I see are people not knowing what they're allowed to do. I There's a lot of people out there that throw um, verbiage around like you're tampering with evidence if you do anything on your property prior to the thing settling out or going into a suit. And, but homeowners also need to know and understand that, that you have a, not, not just like a recommendation, it's an obligation on your end to prevent further damages from happening to the, to the house and to the property. So if there's a leak coming from your roof, you have an obligation in the policy to do a, a reasonable repair to get it to stop leaking. 
So, um, you know, it, it, is that accurate? Is there anything else like to kind of piggyback on that? Cause I, I see that quite, quite often. Yeah. So every policy under that, again, duties after a loss, you're going to have a duty to make reasonable attempts to mitigate further damage from occurring. Doesn't mean you have to go fix things and do a permanent fix or repair, but you have to try to stop things from getting worse. Right. So in the context of, you know, maybe roof damage, you you may need to tarp it. You may need to do a patch job. Um, you may need to do something to try to stop further leaks from occurring, right? You may need to caulk windows or try to reseal windows that have been damaged or something like that. Um, so you, you always want to do those mitigation efforts um, to try to stop it, right? You know, that's kind of the, the triage. Let's stop this before it gets worse. Um, and you're, you're trying to mitigate any further damage from occurring. Once you've done that, you have no duty or obligation to make any permanent repairs, right? Especially if you haven't settled up and resolved your claim yet. So I get this question a lot when clients come to me and they say, well, do I have to wait till the end of the lawsuit to replace my roof? Or do I have to wait to the end of the lawsuit to complete these repairs? And that's a personal decision and choice for, for the homeowner. And so what I tell my clients is it's your property, it's your home. Okay. You want to make the best decision possible on how to protect that and what you're comfortable with doing. Um, and I just let them know that if they do make those repairs, we need a couple different things. One, we need to have a little bit of a heads up, right? We need to have some notice before you do a permanent repair. Before you rip the roof off and put a brand new roof on, we need to have some notice. Usually about 30 to 60 days notice before you actually complete that repair because we may need to get our experts out there to look at it before you do it, even though it's already been inspected, maybe by a public adjuster or others, we may need to get our expert out there also. We also need to let the insurance company know, right? Because the roof is evidence at that point. And so if you're going to go replace the roof, we need to try to also provide notification to the insurance company that if you wanna do any reinspections, Here's your last chance. The roof's going to be replaced as of X date. Okay. So it's kind of a last call. Get out for the there. Get out company. there. Yeah. If you want to come, come take a look at it. But we're moving forward with doing repairs by this date. If you're going to do repairs, I tell homeowners, do it right. Okay. Don't cut corners. Don't go with the cheapest contractor. Right. You want to do it, do the job right if you're going to go in and make permanent repairs. Under your policy, once you've permanently fixed something, once you've made that repair, estimates, bids no longer really are applicable, right? They, they don't apply. That receipt, that invoice becomes the best evidence of what it actually costs to fix it, okay? Doesn't mean the insurance company is gonna automatically pay it. They, they're still gonna fight and say they don't owe it, right? They're gonna argue that, yeah, you had to replace your roof, but you didn't have to replace it because of something that's covered under our policy, right? They think it was, pre-existing condition or wear and tear. So just because you replace the roof doesn't mean the insurance company is going to cut you a check for that. But if we do prevail on the case, if we went to trial, if we went to, to trial and we tried the case and the jury said, yes, we were right and the insurance company was wrong, that receipt or invoice is going to set the amount of loss, right? So for better or for worse, once you've done a permanent repair, 
your bids or proposals or estimates no longer really apply, at least for that item that you fixed, right? Now we're going to be focused on that receipt or that invoice. So if you fixed it for more than your estimate, the damages are going up. If you fixed it for less than your estimate, the damages are going to go down, right? Because that receipt or invoice is the best evidence of what it actually truly costs you to, to complete those repairs. That's why I tell homeowners, don't cut corners with it, right? That receipt or invoice is going to be used against you. So don't go with the cheapest contractor, right? Don't put it on a, a 20 year, you know, three tab shingle when you had an architectural sh shingle on there before, right? So um, don't try to cut corners in that regard. If you're going to fix it, you probably want to make sure you're doing it correctly because the insurance company is going to copy that receipt or invoice. And we can try to argue it's not an apples to apples comparison. Like maybe you went with a cheaper roof than you're really entitled to. But at the end of the day, that receipt or invoice is going to be an exhibit. You want to make sure that you're, you're doing it correctly and you're not cutting corners and kind of shooting yourself in the foot by, you know, maybe partially fixing um, an item, but now it gets construed as a permanent repair or fix. Yeah. And the last thing on that thing, man, I, I just, I can't stress it enough. If you're going to do a temporary repair, please document. <laughs> please make sure your contractor has taken photos or if you want to try and do it yourself. Um, I don't recommend homeowners doing these repairs themselves. The, the more you have a professional out there doing it, the less likely it is that the carrier is going to find some loophole to deny paying for something or say, Hey, you know, this was a horrible repair. We're not, we're now not going to pay for the rest of these interior damages because you didn't hire a professional. But if, if you're going to do this, please make sure your, your contractor is documenting, take photos before show exactly, you know, what's being fixed and then show after photos showing that the, that the temporary repair has been done. Right. And I mean, th that documentation is, is key. Um, the, the Texas Supreme Court in a, a recent decision said that the insurance claim process is adversarial, sir, is adversarial from the time you file the claim until the time the claim is concluded, right? So the moment you file a claim, it becomes an adversarial process with the insurance company, right? You're at odds. The, the person that's addressing the claim, telling you how much they owe, is the one that owes it, right? So it's an adversarial process from the word go. And so... Knowing it's an adversarial process, you want to make sure and document everything, right? You need to keep, the homeowner needs, needs to keep a detailed record of every phone call they have with the adjuster, what the adjuster said. You need to take photographs. You need to take videos, right? Uh, you want to document everything you can about that loss. Four, five, six photos is not sufficient, right? Yeah. So you, you need hundreds of photos. Uh, you know, more photos, the better. Right. So um, especially when it comes to like contents, for instance, that's a common thing, especially after like flood events or hurricane events or tornadoes. You know, uh, we had some tornadoes come through in, in Houston uh, back about three or four weeks ago. Uh, and if you drive through, you see people with their contents, their personal property sitting out there on the curb. Right. Once that debris contractor comes through, picks that up and hauls it off. The insurance company is going to fight you and say, well, was it really a leather couch you had or was yeah. it a, you know, a, a, a fake leather? Was it a pleather couch? Right. Mm -hmm. um, did you really have three armchairs or did you have two? Right. So they're going to fight you on everything. So you got to document all of that. You want 
more photos, the better. If you can get a serial number off things, take that. If there's a tag on a piece of furniture, photograph that. Um, and then please let the insurance adjuster at least get an opportunity to inspect it before it gets hold off, right? Even if it's only once, have them, you know, don't just set it out there. Don't let somebody hold in anything away until the adjuster has seen it. Because even if you have photographs or you have video, right, you still have to give an opportunity for the insurance company to inspect it, their adjusters to see it. So they can verify, you know, that couch really was wet. It really did get rained on. Yeah. No, that makes sense, man. Well, I know um, in addition to these duties after loss, there's also duties on the carrier side. And most of those come in the form of what we call prompt pay deadlines. So, um, you know, I, I get this all the time that, you know, we get into a file six months, a year later, and the homeowner's kind of taking me through the timeline and the history of the claim. And they're sitting here telling me, yeah, you know, the guy didn't show up for two months until after we made the phone call. You know, we didn't get a, our first estimate until two or three months uh, after they showed up. Um, you know, can you kind of talk about some of the timetables that are in place, not just in the policies themselves, but also in the, uh, you know, Texas insurance code or the insurance code in any other states? Correct. So mo most states have a uh, timelines and deadlines that the insurance company has to investigate the claim and then reach a claim determination to either accept it or to reject it. And if they accept it, tell you how much they're paying you. Okay. So you have timelines and deadlines that are built in. They're usually not in the policy itself. It's usually in the state law that sets out those timelines and, and deadlines for the insurance company to accept or reject the claim. That time doesn't actually start counting until you've complied with your duties after a loss, right? And one of those duties after a loss is submitting a proof of loss. So under like Texas law and, and many other states, the timeline, which is 15 business days, does not actually start counting until you submit a proof of loss to the insurance company, okay? A proof of loss is a legal document that says essentially how much damages you think you have, right? It, it sets out, it has some other language in there saying that you did not cause this damage. Uh, it wasn't done intentionally. So it, it has some standard verbiage that's usually in a proof of loss there. But until you tell the insurance company, hey, I had damage on this date of loss and here's how much you owe me for that damage, then the clock doesn't actually start ticking for the insurance company to accept or reject that. That's kind of a foreign concept to most, most homeowners, right? They think, well, the insurance company is going to come out, they're going to write an estimate, and they'll provide the information as far as how much money they owe me. Well, the insurance company doesn't even have to act until you've provided that information to them. So most homeowners are probably not going to be able to you know, compile an estimate or documentation to adequately estimate what the damages are. So they need to work with a contractor. They need to work with a public adjuster, somebody that can help them get a packet of information together to say, here's how much it's really going to be to fix your house and make it back to a pre-loss condition. Okay. Um, but until you submit that package of information with that proof of loss, the insurance company is not actually on the clock. Mm -hmm. So the insurance company knows that they're going to avoid trying to be placed on that clock. They're not going to do anything that triggers the clock on their side. 
And so it, it's on you to submit that package to them, start that clock ticking. And so you actually have to tell the insurance company, here's how much I think the damages are. And you can do that through like a bid from a, a contractor. You can do that through an estimate that's written like in an Xactimate or a computer software program. Um, or it could just be, you know, a, a, a single item, bid item from a contractor saying, here's how much your damages are. But you need some basis that you're telling the insurance company, here's how much I think my damages are. And then that triggers the clock for them to say yes or no to that. Well, and I, I think that's really important to note because you hear and homeowners are getting smarter because they're talking to, you know, smarter contractors and the terms unfair claim settlement, bad faith, these things are just tossed out there in the wind all the time, right? So if a guy's acting like, you know, acting like a dick on site, un you're unfair claim settlement, you know, you're you're acting in bad faith and right. stuff like this is is thrown around all the time, but it's it's a lot different when you actually link a direct violation of a specific section of insurance code or a term in the policy that's being misrepresented or it's being misled. That's so the only real way to do that. And the reason that that's important, at least in my mind for you is if you get, you know, that, that determines whether or not your fee comes out of the homeowner's allotment or if it gets tacked on in addition to, and in the state of Texas, to my understanding, right, your your fees are added on top of if you can establish unfair claim settlement and bad faith. Correct. Yeah. And, and you know, bad faith is is a, a term that I think has really been watered down and gets thrown around a lot. You know, you know, contractors, homeowners, even attorneys saying, oh, this is bad faith or that's bad faith. So bad faith is really, like you said, it's called unfair claim settlement practices. Uh, in most state laws, um, an insurance company is supposed to act with the duty of good faith and fair dealing. That means they're supposed to be open and honest and transparent with you, right? They're not supposed to be misrepresenting things. They're not supposed to be lying to you. But the chance of proving bad faith is slim to none if you don't have good documentation, right? And that documentation starts with the homeowner. It continues through the contractor and through the public adjuster. So that if it needs to go to an attorney, it's a smooth transition. And that attorney actually has some good facts where they can say, yes, I think the insurance company did violate the law. And here's how I think they violated it. Right. I think when they told you this, that was actually a misrepresentation. But you got to start capturing and gathering that information. Right. Because the attorney can't go back in time. They can't recreate what happened. They weren't there for the inspections or the reinspections. So. If your adjuster shows up on the first inspection and doesn't have a ladder, the homeowner needs to write that down, right? Um, it happens, but the insurance company is never gonna report on themselves, right? They're never gonna say, oh, the adjuster didn't have a ladder. I had one the other day, it, believe it or not, it was a commercial property, a community college, and I was talking to the maintenance director and I asked him, you know, did the adjuster get on the roof when he was out here? And he said, no, the adjuster told me he was scared of heights. Okay. You got to document that information. You got to write all that right. information down. So if you don't capture all that information, you know, how long were they there for the, you know, the investigation? Did they get on the roof? Um, if they got on the roof, were they only up there for two or three minutes or did they spend, you know, 30 minutes looking around? Um, did they get in the attic space? Did they come do a interior inspection or did they not? 
Um, you got to document all of that. And that documentation really starts first and foremost with the homeowner, because a lot of times they're the only ones involved in the claim initially uh, when the initial claims being filed. And that can carry on through the contractor and through the public adjuster. Right now, there are certain guidelines on what a contractor can do versus what a public adjuster can do versus an attorney. Right. And so a contractor can't do what would be considered public adjusting unless they have a public adjuster's license. But to all the contractors out there that are listening, nothing says you can't document what's going on. Right. Yeah. So you can be really good at documenting what's occurring during the adjustment of the claim. You know, who showed up? Did the inspector get on the roof or did he not? Did uh, did the actual adjuster get on the roof or did he send some third party vendor to go get on the roof, right? Document all that information. And so as contractors, it's important to document that. And if you're just a homeowner that's dealing with the adjuster directly, initially on the claim, then you need to be the one documenting that. You know, if they cancel an inspection with you, write that down, right? Uh, every time you have a phone call with the adjuster, write down the adjuster's name, the date and time of the phone call and kind of an overview of what was discussed, right? Anything they told you, write that down. Uh, anything they tell you on site. A lot of times I talk to homeowners and they say, the adjuster that came out was very nice. He said, yes, there was a lot of damage um, and he was gonna go write it up for a new roof and he got in his truck and left. And then, you know, a month later, I got the denial letter from the insurance company saying there was no damage here. So. But you got to document that if the adjuster told you on site, yes, I see a lot of damage. I think it's a full roof replacement. You need to write that down. Who said that? When did they say it? Exactly what they said. If you can quote them, do that. Yeah. No, that's good. And here's another another tip also that I know, you know, public adjusters and contractors utilize this a lot, but, um, you know, homeowners may not be aware of it uh, in most states you can videotape and record inspections that occur. So if you want, if the adjuster's coming out, you can videotape the inspection, you can see what they're doing, record their name, um, you know, record anything they're telling you in regards to damages they're seeing. And you can go around with the adjuster and say, hey, what are you finding? Do you see damage here? Um, how do you think this damage occurred? You can interview the adjuster and document what they're saying and then also record it, um, you know, because if you have the recording, that's even better. Well, and I think that's good. I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but in, in Texas, it's it's one-sided consent. So I don't have to notify the other person that I'm even recording. I don't have to let them know that I'm, I have them on video or on an audio recording. And, you know, for a lot of people, they're not going to be getting up on the roof with the adjuster, Right. And if they don't have a contractor to do that for them, they're probably not climbing up there and, and getting on their roof. But it is good to have a consult with them after they get off. And even if, you know, in a fresh storm, these guys are jumping between, you know, six, eight, ten inspections a day. They're trying to get in and out. It's important for the homeowner to kind of slow that clock down a little bit. Hey, before you leave, I'd like for you to come talk to me and let me know that you're done with the inspection. And then... Yep if you want to have that recording device, simply ask them, Hey, you know, what, what'd you see up there? What, what all is going on up there and have that on file? Because if you get a letter or an estimate, you know, a couple of weeks later, that's in, it, it's not up to par of what y'all discussed on site. It's a lot easier for you. It's a lot easier for me to go back to that audio recording and go, Hey guys, y'all said this on site. 
what's the deal? You know? Yeah. And if it's a major catastrophic event, you know, a major hurricanes or tornadoes, a lot of times the insurance company is going to get adjusters that come in from across the country. Mm-hmm. So you may get adjusters that come out to your property that aren't from your home state. So, and they may be gone a month or two from now, by the time you get that letter. So get their full name, get a telephone number, get an email address for them. Try to get some documentation of who came out, right? Um, because sometimes we have to actually track down that adjuster after they've gone back to their home state. Uh, they may not even be working for that insurance company any longer, but we may need to track them down and try to verify some information from them. Yeah, no, that's good, man. Uh, while we're talking about recordings, uh, something else I think is really important. You know, everybody has, you know, ring doorbells or they have security cameras on their, their properties, their home. Uh, if you have a loss, right, and you know you have damage um, from a storm that comes through um, or some event, capture that, re- you know, save that recording because, you know, you may have the doorbell footage of it and you may pull it up and view it, but it's usually going to ride over itself in about 30 days or 60 days, right? And so six months down the road, when you realize, hey, it'd really be good if I had that footage, yeah. You may not be able to go back and find it anymore. So if you have security footage, you have security cameras, you have ring doorbell cameras. Sometimes there are even cameras on the inside of the, you know, the, the property. I was, I was at a daycare facility the other day and they had a water loss and I was asking them the same thing. Do you, you know, do you have footage of the interior cameras here in the daycare showing the water loss? You know, you want to capture that information and save it before it gets written over or lost. Well, I think that's really important because, you know, just like you said, when a big loss happens, right, they're pulling adjusters from all over the country. Um, Those adjusters weren't here in the DFW Metroplex or wherever you're at in Texas or any other state. And, you know, they they weren't here when that storm rolled through. And there's a lot of these hail maps that are highly inaccurate. Um, They're not consistent across all of them. And um, they may be looking at documentation that you're outside, your residence is outside the hail map or it's on the edge, right? And these guys may be getting files where they're in ground zero, where there's busted out windows, there's, you know, the the windshields in their cars in the driveway are busted out. It's a slam dunk case. And they come to yours where it's not as obvious. And they're going to go, well, you know, the hail didn't really drop down over here very, very bad. And it's a big statement piece to have, like your ring doorbell or recording of you on your back porch, videoing it on your phone. And it does paint a picture. Cause if that guy tries to come to you and say, Hey, it really wasn't that bad here. And you've got a video of hail chunks dropping, you know, mortar bombs in your pool. um, It's a big statement piece. And, and it's saying, no hail did drop here. And if you can step out for a couple minutes and record something, do it. If you can, take that recording from your ring doorbell or uh, another security camera, save that file and just hold on to it for a year or two. And um, you, you never know when it's going to come in handy. You, you don't know how that adjuster is going to react when he comes out to look at that stuff. Um, yeah. I've told people. Hey, or record before you start gutting the house. You know, if you have yeah. a, a water loss, you know, before you even start ripping the floors up, just record walking around on the floors where water's squirting out here and there. And you can see it every time you step on, you know, one of the baseboards or something. So um, we record that information. It's important to capture that. Yeah, no, that's awesome, man. That's really good. Um, You know, something else I kind of wanted to touch base on was, you know, we, we hear the term data loss all the time. This is the date that 
storm happened. Um, and it's really important to make sure we get this date right. And there's a lot of contractors out there that, you know, with, they're the ones that are involved with the homeowner from the beginning, right? They're knocking doors. They're telling, Hey, you know, you guys had a hail storm. Have you guys filed a claim yet? No, let me help you do that. And there's a lot of contractors out there that are not setting a specific date, especially these guys that are coming into an area, you know, they may work a ground zero big hailstorm, but then, you know, in DFW, we get three or four a year and they may not work an area until six months, seven months, eight months later, and they don't go back and set the right date. And they do this date of discovery, right? And um, they're allowing the carrier to dictate what date to put on the date of loss. And they're allowing the carrier to dictate what storm caused these damages. And to me, it's like, I'm not trusting the person who's responsible for cutting me a check also be the one that sets the date for me. And I I just think it's important for people to understand what a true data loss is and then kind of what the difference is between a data loss and data discovery and why that's so important. Sure. And, you know, back to duties after a loss, that is a duty of the insured. The insured has that burden of proof of establishing that they had damage and that it was caused by a certain peril, you know, a windstorm event, a hell event, and what date that damage occurred on. Okay, so the date of loss is one of those critically important things. And a lot of homeowners, a lot of contractors, even a lot of attorneys get tripped up on it. Don't let the insurance company assign your date of loss. They are not going to do their due diligence. They're not going to try to go back and research and find the correct, appropriate date of loss, right? The insurance company is not going to do you any favors. When you call in a claim for the insurance company, if you call it in today, they're putting today's date down as the date of loss, nine times out of 10, right? The date of loss may have been yesterday, or it may have been three months ago, but that's a big difference. So if they put today's date of loss down, and today there was no wind or there was no hell event that occurred, then the insurance company is going to say, we don't owe you anything. There was no wind or hell on this date. And yeah, you may not discover that's a big issue until several months down the road when you get a denial letter or you have to go file a lawsuit. So it's important to get the correct date of loss assigned on the claim initially. So if, if you're the homeowner, Go back and do some research. If you remember the event, you remember the storm coming through, you remember the big, you know, thunderstorm that came through with hell, go back and check your photos. What day did you take the photo on? What day did you take the video on? Um, if you remember a certain date, like maybe your kids had a ball game and you're driving home and then it started helling on the way home, go back to your calendar and try to find out what date that is. Because under Texas law and in most states, you as the homeowner have that burden of proof. You have to establish that date of loss. The insurance company can sit back and they can try to punch holes in the date of loss. And if you leave it up to them to assign the date, they're not going to pick the date that's you know advantageous to you. It's going to be one that's advantageous to them usually, right? They're going to pick the date you phoned it in. Yeah. Um, and so that's that's important. Now you're put on notice that. If you see roofers, everybody going around in the neighborhood, getting new roofs in your neighborhood, if you see people knocking on your door, people sending you flyers saying you may have hell damage, 
you're being put on notice as a homeowner, you need to investigate whether you potentially have wind or hail damage. Okay. Just because you don't see a leak or you don't see damage, you don't want to let that go by, right? If there are some events and you see your neighbors getting new roofs, you see roofers uh, working in your, your neighborhood, you need to do your due diligence and do an investigation to see if maybe you have damage. Because if you wait too long, if you wait, you know, a year, year and a half down the road, and then you go try to file your claim, it can get denied for that reason too, just because you may legitimately have damage, but you waited too long to speak up and say anything about it. So that, that's important, you know, file your claim as close to the time of when the damage occurred and correct and make sure you have the correct date of loss, you know, when that damage actually occurred and tell that to the insurance company. And if you're a homeowner or a contractor that's out there and you see that the insurance company has assigned the incorrect date of loss, have them correct it, have them change that, tell them, nope, that's not the correct date of loss. The correct date of loss is this date. Okay. Um, because that's something that's, that's critically important. Insurance companies are getting lawsuits dismissed left and right uh, all across the state for having incorrect dates of loss. Yeah. You know, where they go tell the judge, well, your honor, this was reported as a wind and hell claim. And we pulled up the weather data and it was 85 degrees and it was sunny and no report of any hell, no report of any winds other than a five mile an hour breeze. So we don't think the damage occurred on this date. And that argument is sufficient a lot of times to get a case dismissed based on that. So you want to have that correct date of loss. Yeah. Well, and I tell any, I tell homeowners this sometimes, but I mostly tell people that have worked for me, whether it's a sales guy or, or, or whether it's a, a PA um, guy that's worked for me on the roofing side, I tell everybody that this is a game and you need to understand what the rules are. You need to know where the line is, walk it. If you have to don't cross it and play it harder and smarter than the other guy. And they're just like you said before, they've they've gotten this claims process down to a T. And a lot of things that we're seeing in the industry now are getting engineers involved. And these engineers are licensed engineers that come from really big firms. These carriers and adjusters are hiring these guys to come in and say this is or is not damage, right? Or they're gonna they're gonna come in and dispute the data loss that's assigned. And yep. parts of what they do on disputing that date of loss is going in and saying, hey, you said that this date of loss is on this date and that the carrier assigned and that the carrier told them that it was. And they're going to go, well, the hail that was on this storm was 0.5 inches. And you're trying to show me damages of something that was 1.5 or 1.75 or 2 inch. And that didn't happen in this storm. So we're going to deny this claim and say that it's from an old date of loss outside of your um, period that you have of what's an acceptable amount of time to record a, uh, a loss. And then they're just going to deny the claim. And you got to understand that this is a game. And that if you let the carrier dictate the date of loss, I've had it numerous times with these dates of loss that are, I'm coming in way later at six months afterwards or something. And I'm looking at the state of loss and I'm going, who assigned this? Like the, the, the damage that I'm seeing is an inch, inch and a half. And the loss on here, it, it's, it's 15 miles away from the residence or the property. And mm -hmm. then the carrier is going to go, I've asked the carrier, Hey, who's, who assigned this? And they go, well, we don't know. And it's like, <laughs> is that the person that was on the phone with the homeowner? And they just recorded it the day that they called it or, or what? 
And when they have disputes, they have a, a basis to deny your claim. So if you control it from the beginning and you assign the correct date of loss with the correct damages that were in that storm assigned to what you're seeing up there on the property, you're setting yourself up to, to succeed and to win. And if you let them dictate it, you have no idea what data loss they're going to assign. They, they may assign it to a loss that happened 15, 20 miles away from the house, from the home. They look like they're cooperating until an engineer comes and then they deny the whole thing and say, well, this storm happened, didn't happen anywhere close to here. Yeah. So really as a, a homeowner, there's kind of four key things that a homeowner needs to do to try to document the loss. They need to make sure that they identify the correct date of loss. You know, when did this damage occur? Right. And if you're off by a day or two, that's not a big deal. You know, sometimes storms come through overnight and you don't know exactly what day it is, but you only try to get as specific as you can on identifying the correct date of loss. Okay. The other thing a homeowner should be doing is filing that claim as close to that date of loss as possible. Right. As soon as you know you have damage or you suspect you have damage, go ahead and get the claim filed. Make sure that the insurance company knows what the data loss is that you're claiming on it. The next thing they need to do is really photograph and document everything, right? Take photographs, take video, um, you know, more photos, the better. Then they need to come up with what the damages are, you know, and make sure they've complied with those duties after a loss. On the contractor and public adjuster side, you need to do those core set of four things plus some, right? And, and you know, I, I teach a boot camp for public adjusters and contractors with uh, with uh, Cal and, and Melanie Spoon. And, you know, so we teach them training on how to document the loss and how to do that. I'm teaching class this this week. We're, we're, we're having the boot camp this week. But insurance companies are getting more and more sophisticated with their policies, with their exclusions, and how they are essentially laying traps out there to try to trip up the homeowner. And so no matter if you're the homeowner, you're the public adjuster, you're a contractor, you have to up your game on how you're documenting the losses, right? And you wanna make sure that it's set up correctly. The insurance companies are gonna violate the law on just about every claim, right? Whether it's the timelines and deadlines or whether it's um, the unfair claim settlement practices, what they're telling you the damages are or not damaged, but it takes documentation. Right. If you have that documentation, you have that built up, then you have a really good shot of going and proving your case and, and winning it. But if you don't have that documentation and you just rely on the insurance company, let me just phone the claim in and let the insurance company run with it. That claim's not going to be set up for success. And a lot of times it's going to be set up for failure by doing that. Yeah. And the insurance carrier always uh, always looks out for what's best for the homeowner. Right. They, they never uh, they, they never look out for their own interests. Yeah, I mean, where well, where else does this occur where the person that owes you the money is the one that's coming out to adjust the loss and tell you how much money they owe? You know, it, it's one of those things where um, there's obviously a conflict of interest there. Um, and so you got to realize that on the front end as a homeowner and make sure that you're doing everything you can to protect yourself and your property. Yeah, no, that's good, man. Um, you know, I... I with the data loss, I think it's important how this transitions into. You got me there. Still, you're you're kind of frozen on your end. Am I? Let me see yeah. if I can. Good, we're good. To All go. good now. Yeah. Oh yeah, beauties of uh, starting a 
new podcast and getting all the <laughs> kinks worked out, right? Hey, my, my hat's off to you. I know it takes a, a lot of work and a lot of effort trying to to put it together. And then you got all the technical stuff on the back end too of, of editing it and, and getting it ready. So, um, but I think, you know, what you're doing is great and the industry needs more of this. So. No, I appreciate it, man. And it, it's a little daunting, man. I mean, when you're talking about the things that we're talking about and you're, I don't know if you know this or not, but there's a few egos in this industry and uh, it's uh, it was. I've run into a few of them here and there. So. Yeah. <laughs> um, it, you know, everybody thinks they know more than the other guy, and it's a little daunting to put your face and your company logo out into the public. And so, that was my kind of biggest biggest thing starting this was, you know, am I going to constantly deal with guys trying to think they know more, they know the right thing? You know, you're an idiot. You don't know what the hell you're talking about. But, you know, there's been so many times where I've had conversations with guys like you or other people in the industry and, you know, we'll be talking for one, two hours and just go, man, I really wish I had that on camera. <laughs> yeah. You know? And and just really wish that we had something recording that conversation because it was just such a crazy conversation or talking about big things in the industry or, you know, we're like, people don't talk about this. People don't know these things. And that's why I really wanted to start this and why my wife and I really prayed about it and, and thought about it because we were like, okay, well, the people that are doing it are gearing it more towards attorneys, contractors, other PAs, nobody's really doing it for the homeowner. And that's mm -hmm. where I really wanted to have this focus on. I always wanted it to revert back to the homeowners and how do they insure their house? What are some, you know, red flags to keep an eye on, you know, just whatever helps the homeowner out. And we kind of committed to one a week. So this is going to be, it's going to be a challenge, but um, I, I think That's it's awesome. Be yeah. But, um, but yeah, I mean, I think, uh, you know, we were talking a little bit about some of the transition on the timetables there after the day loss. And um, you know, some of those timetables kind of lead into statute of limitations. And I really wanted to make sure that people understood some of those statute of limitations from you why that's important. And it's not like everybody wants to go sue their carrier, right? Not, not everybody wants to go to court. Not everybody wants to hire a, a lawyer, no matter how much, no matter how charming you are. And, uh, and I think it's important though, to know what those timetables are. If you are going to sue, if you are going to, to do this, you need to know that there's a time clock. So, right. So in, in, in Texas, uh, we, we follow a breach of contract rule. So the clock doesn't really even start ticking on your deadline to file a lawsuit until there's been a breach of your insurance policy, a breach of the contract. Usually that means that the insurance company came out and they denied your claim or they came out, and they paid some money, but it's not the correct amount of money that you think they owe you. Either one of those events could be an event that triggers that clock to start ticking, right? So if they deny your claim or they say, yes, we're accepting coverage and here's your $5,000 check, the date of either one of those could trigger that clock to start ticking, right? The date those letters are, are drafted. Um, also, if they just close their file out, if you ever get an email from a, an insurance company saying, we've investigated your loss and we're closing your file, that could also start that clock ticking, right? Where they just close out your file. So you have, and, and it varies by policy. Some policies give you a little bit longer, but the kind of the majority of policies in Texas say you have two years 
from when the breach of contract occurs, right? Two years from when you get that denial letter or two years from when you get that first estimate from the insurance company. Um, you do always have to look at your policy, um, but it's never going to be shorter than two years from when that breach occurs in Texas. It may be longer, but it won't be shorter. Um, there's state law that says the insurance companies cannot shorten it less than two years from when that breach of contract occurs. So um, generally you have, you know, good rule of thumb is two years. It's kind of hard sometimes to figure out when that breach occurred, you know, because you don't always know what documentation has been produced or what they've done internally. So as a 100% fail safe, you're always going to be within the, the deadline to file your lawsuits if you go with two years from your data loss, right? Yeah. If, if you are filing suit within two years from your data loss, you know 100% you're, you're safe. You cannot be past the deadline. If you get beyond that, you may have more time but it's one of those things where you'd have to make sure you have all the letters issued by the insurance company, all the estimates, because you're going to have to kind of go in and do an analysis of when that breach actually occurred, which, you know, even as an attorney can be a complicated thing to do, because sometimes we find out once we filed the lawsuit, the insurance company said they sent a letter two weeks before and the homeowner doesn't recall receiving it. And so I always tell people, if you want to be 100 percent safe, just say you have two years from the date of loss. Yeah. Well, and, you know, I've got a file right now where, um, you know, it's a big water loss. It's probably going to be, you know, $350,000, $450,000 claim. But this is from the freeze of 21. And the homeowner was really um, hesitant because they were like, you know, we've got to move. Like, we, we're, we're about to be up. Like, we can't sue. They're already saying, I can't recoup depreciation unless we're unless we finish the project within a month from now. And I went through the claim history and I said, Hey, I need you to send me all the, any and all estimates or letters that they, that they sent you during the process. And I went ahead and sent in a, our letter of representation, our contract into the carrier too, and requested the same thing before we even started investigating. And, um, you know, we found out that the, they got a revised estimate as recently as, you know, early December of 2020 of 22. And so when that happens, that, that moved the goalpost, right? And I had to get her to understand that, hey, when they adjusted this, and it's a significant amount, there's at least a $50,000 increase in coverage uh, that happened from the uh, third estimate, you know, that happened before that and this fourth one that you got. Um, and it happened just as recently as December of 22, that two-year mark has been moved. And you guys have, an, an, and we sent in a request for extension depreciation and, they're ironically denying that, which is um, going to be a fun complaint to write. But, um, mm -hmm. you know, it's it's important to know that that goalpost can move. Yeah. And, you know, uh, something you hit on, too, a, a few minutes ago that I, I want to circle back to, um, talking about engineers and, and talking about, you know, denials in, in a policy. Everything the insurance company does is designed to try to frustrate you as the homeowner, right? Try to get you to give up on your claim. That's the claim process. Some insurance companies are better than others for sure, but for the most part, the insurance companies are dragging out the process and the homeowners are getting frustrated and giving up, right? And they know if they do that a hundred times, 95 out of a hundred are gonna give up somewhere along the way. Don't give up the fight. If you're a homeowner, 
and you've had the insurance company come out, they may have sent an engineer out, okay? Like you said, that engineer was assigned by the insurance company. They were hired by the insurance company. That engineer has a incentive to write what the insurance company wants them to write, right? Doesn't mean you don't have any damage or you don't have any coverage under your policy. A lot of times you just need to get a with an expert and maybe eventually we'll get an engineer or something like that once we get in the legal process to prove that you really do have damages, right? So don't take that engineer report from the insurance company at, you know, take it at face value for what it is. It's their hired gun writing a report how they want the report written for the most part. So if they deny your claim and they say, well, there's no coverage under your policy, always get a second opinion, right? Don't let the person that owes you the money tell you whether there's any coverage there or not. Talk to a contractor, talk to a public adjuster, right? And have them look at it because a lot of times there's exclusions in the policy and the insurance company just wants to be able to point and say, well, I'm sorry, Ms. Johnson, under this exclusion, there's no coverage here. Sometimes that's truthful and that's accurate. There really is no coverage, but a lot of times they are misrepresenting that exclusion, right? Or they're not telling you about other coverages that you may be afforded under the policy. So don't give up if you're the homeowner and you get initially denied. They're hoping you just pack up your bags and go home. That's what the insurance company wants to happen. So if you get that denial letter, that just means you need to get a second opinion, right? You need to get with a professional, get a second opinion about whether you really have, was that denial proper or do you maybe have coverage under your policy? Yeah. Well, and kind of to touch on, you know, having those second opinions, having those professionals, right? You you and your contractor have been through the process. You know, what are my options from here? You know, I kind of feel like they're biting down. They're putting their foot in the ground. They're not moving. Um, you know, that's typically where we get involved at that point, right? They've been through several months of going back and forth. And then that's when a homeowner hires us as a PA. Um, you know, what, what's the importance to you of having a PA involved on the file prior to someone coming to you and saying, hey, we want to pursue litigation? Yeah. Uh, it, it's very important um, because I want to get a file that's been properly documented and those duties after a loss um, and the engineers that the insurance company brings out and all the other exclusionary language, you really need a expert in there assisting the homeowner and properly preparing that claim for a lawsuit if it needs to get to that point, right? Hopefully it doesn't need to get to an attorney. Hopefully you can get the claim resolved but you're a lot better suited if you have a professional that knows what they're doing and can review your policy, see what coverages you have, and is properly documenting that loss for you. Um, you can try to do it as your as a homeowner. Um, start by reading the duties after a loss, but a lot of times most homeowners are not going to be able to fully read the policy and understand that. So I, I think it's very important for, for homeowners to get with a professional, right? The insurance company has their adjuster. That adjuster is being paid for by the insurance company, whether they're an in-house employee or whether they're an outside contractor, they're still being paid by the insurance company. As a homeowner, you need somebody that's going to advocate and fight for you. You need somebody that's going to represent your interest and make sure your claim is being documented correctly and put forth to the insurance company. Yeah. Well, I'm sure that you've had files that you know have involved PAs, ones that haven't. And you've seen PAs from all over the country, right? 
Um, you know, what, what are some good stipulations for the homeowner to know, Hey, you know, this, this PA seems to have a little bit different of, a, of an approach. This PA seems to have, uh, um, um, an approach to handling a claim file that I want on my team. You know, what, what are some stipulations that, you know, you look for as an attorney? Yeah. So uh, same thing that they should be asking, um, you know, an attorney, I, I think you need to interview any prospective public adjuster, contractor, or attorney you're going to be working with. And you need to ask them some basic questions. You know, how long have you been doing this? How long, if it's a public adjuster, how long have you been licensed as a public adjuster? Right. Um, how many claims have you handled against this insurance company or this type of loss? How are you going to document my loss differently than what I could do as a homeowner? Right. Um, because a lot of public adjusters have, you know, tools of the trade that they can bring to bear on a loss. You know, they have thermal imaging cameras, they have moisture meters, they have drones, they have Matterport or DocuSketch, you know, different, uh, different tools where they can actually properly document and capture the information. Um, you know, Eagle View, measuring your roof and stuff like that. Most homeowners aren't going to know how many squares their roof is, right? So you, you want to talk to your public adjuster and see what's your approach to a claim. And every public adjuster or attorney you work with should be fighting to get you paid every penny that you're owed, right? You don't want somebody that's going to throw things at the wall to see what sticks. You don't want somebody that's going to write for damage that you're telling them was pre-existing or was not part of this loss, right? That's that's fraudulent. You don't want somebody doing that. So you want somebody that you have a, a good rapport, a good working relationship with. You're going to be talking to that person a lot over the next couple of months through that process. Um, you're going to have them in your home probably more than once doing inspections and stuff. So you want to have a level of confidence that, you know, who you're working with is, is being honest with you. They seem confident. This isn't their first loss. Um, and that's important. You know, just because they're a public adjuster doesn't mean they have any construction background or construction knowledge or, you know, know how to actually, you know, write a proper scope. So you want to ask those questions of, of your public adjuster. Yeah. And, you know, I, I, I just kind of go through some of these, some of these things and it, to me, it makes sense to have these people in your back pocket as tools prior to experiencing a loss. And, and I already kind of know the, my opinion and my answer, but, you know, do you think it's a good idea that these home, that homeowners and property owners should have a PA and an attorney that knows how to handle these types of things before a loss happens? Because it, as a property owner, it's not a matter of if it's a matter of when you're going to experience a loss. And, um, you know, do you think it's a good idea for them to have these people kind of vetted before beforehand right yeah anybody you can have vetted beforehand and on speed dial ready to go you know that's the, that's the best option most homeowners once they've gone through a claim before right and they have another claim they have to file a lot of times they go straight to a public adjuster because they already know what it's going to be like right they've already gone through that process once and they already know how difficult it's going to be trying to get the insurance company to to pay what's owed I think it's important too to work with, you know, a, a contractor or a public adjuster pre-loss where, you know, they can even do some inspections of your home or they can photograph it. If you're in certain areas of, of the state, like you said, you know, North Texas, 
there's areas that are getting hit sometimes two, three times a year with hailstorms, right? One of the go-to defenses for insurance companies is going to be that's pre-existing damage. That's old damage, right? And they're going to try to argue that. So it's important as a homeowner, um, you know, to maybe have your, your roof even inspected every couple of years or so, um, just proving that there is no damage, right? It creates a baseline. You have no, no hell damage as of now. That way it negates those arguments that could be coming down the road from an insurance company when you do have to file a claim that this is old damage or pre-existing damage. Well, and I, I think it's a great idea too, that, you know, if you're a new home buyer or you're shopping or maybe you're getting a new house, um, something that I recommend to people all the time is, Hey, you know, even if you don't have damages up there, a, a roofer has no problem coming out and doing a free inspection on your roof. And, um, especially when I was, when I'm a roofer, I, I look at it from the standpoint that I'd rather have this client no matter where they're at for the rest of our lives than just making a quick buck and moving on to the next person. Right. So, yeah. Hey, if you need me to come swing by and take a look at the flashing on this house, you're thinking about buying, you want a report from me that says, Hey, you know, no pre-existing damages. Roof is roughly three years old, uh, based on my inspection. Having that is really powerful. And, and, and when you come into a loss and you can give part of your claim file, a report that was done two years ago saying, Hey, there's no, there's no hail damage up here. Here's some photos of the soft metals that don't show any dents in them. Um, this is the condition of the shingles. Um, you know, and this is from a, a, a professional roofer. That's something that's a pretty powerful thing to have in your back pocket. Absolutely. So you can, you know, work with a, you know, with a contractor, a public adjuster pre-loss in documenting the condition of your property. You can also work with a public adjuster pre-loss in doing a policy review, right? Reviewing your coverages, seeing what coverages you have available um, because maybe they'll catch something and you can actually go change your policy and to make sure you do have the correct coverage when that event does happen down the road. So, yeah, no, that's great. Um, I, I do want to touch on something without going too much into your uh, personal life and pocketbook, right? Um, and I, a lot of PAs and a lot of attorneys don't like talking about fees. And um, it puts a lot of things out there. And I, I just, I feel like homeowners have a real hesitant hesitancy to hiring an attorney because they're afraid that there's not going to be any money left on the table. And, um, you know, they're looking at this going, okay, well, you know, my PA has a fee. The attorney's going to take a big chunk. What am I going to be left with? And I'm going to be left with pennies on the dollar and I'm not going to have enough to get my work done. And I think it's important to talk about this with homeowners and make sure that they understand that this is why it's important to have a PA and an attorney who are um, they, not necessarily working with each other, but they, they, they help each other. They help the process and one builds up the other. And because it, can you kind of talk about how your fee structure is done? not necessarily the amount, but when it, sure. it, can it be tacked on top of, can, can your fees be recouped by the insurance carrier? That way it's not as much of a hit to the homeowner. Yeah. So um, we handle the cases on a contingency fee basis. So if we don't get any additional money, then the homeowner doesn't owe us anything. They're never going to get a, a bill from us as an attorney. Um, for our time or, or our expenses on the case. When we file a lawsuit, there's different bucket, buckets of damage we can go after. So we can go after them for what's called your actual damages, how much you need to fix your home or your business. Uh, we can also go after them for 
A lot of times they violated the, the time periods we discussed earlier. So we can go after them for a penalty interest. Uh, it's called a prompt payment penalty. Uh, we can also go after them for attorney's fees. And if it's been properly documented of unfair claim settlement practices, we can go after them for up to three times your damages. So there's a lot of different buckets we can claim for damages when we file the lawsuit. But at the end of the day, anytime I have a client that expresses you know, some hesitancy in signing up or wanting to know, well, if I sign up with you, are we going to get enough money at the end of the day to, to do the repairs that we need to do? The homeowner, my client, is always in control, right? So any offers of settlement that are made, we bring it to our clients. Ethically, we have to bring every offer to them. Even if we know it's an offer they're going to reject, we, we still have to bring the offers to them. So we bring every offer that the insurance company makes we go over the numbers and say, okay, so you can make an informed decision. Here's what the insurance company is offering. If you want to accept it, here's what you're gonna actually get in your pocket to go complete the repairs. I suggest you talk to a contractor and see if that's gonna be enough to get the repairs done. If it's not, then I recommend you reject that, right? Now, there are clients that can overrule us. They can say, no, I wanna settle the case. Even if we recommend they reject it, but I always tell clients, if it's not enough to get the work done and you're not happy with the, the result, then I recommend we reject the settlement offer and we continue to fight on, right? And we continue ultimately all the way to trial if we need to with the case. So uh, also it's important for homeowners to fight a denial or an underpayment when they receive that, right? A lot of people think, well, the insurance company denied me on this claim I'll just wait till the next big storm comes through two years from now, and then I'll go file a claim on that one. And the insurance company will pay for it then. Once you have a denial by an insurance company, the likelihood they're going to pay for a roof down the road is very small, right? If they've already denied your, your roof claim once, unless you have a catastrophic loss where maybe your roof gets completely ripped off or the shingles are completely, you know, laying all over your yard, Filing a claim for similar type damage, you know, hell damage or wind damage down the road, there's a high likelihood the insurance company is going to deny that claim if they've already denied it once. So the time to fight that is when you get that denial, right? You want to see that process through to the end and hold the insurance company accountable and get them to pay on that claim. If you don't, the chances there of them ever paying for that particular type of damage is slim to none. Okay. Yeah, and I, um, I mean, outside of the fees and not having enough money and things of that nature, what what other fears are you hearing pretty often from homeowners, and they're kind of hesitant to hire an attorney, like you know, because I've heard of people talking about they they think their premiums are going to go up, they think that they're going to be dropped as a as a as a client by the carrier. Um, if they leave that carrier, no other carrier is going to want to pick them up because they've sued their previous carrier. I yeah. mean, you know, all of these I think are valid concerns, but, you know, you and I have talked about this numerous times. So can you kind of shed some light on some of those things? Sure. So common concern, homeowners, you know, are worried that there's going to be some retaliatory action against them. You know, their insurance company is going to drop them or they're going to raise their rates or premiums. Um, insurance companies cannot go in and raise your rate or premium on you individually 
because you have an act of God claim. You have a weather event, you have a, you know, hailstorm, a, a windstorm that comes through. Um, you have lightning that hits your house. They can't raise your rates for that. They can raise your rates if you've had a series of claims for negligence, right? Or, you know, maybe you, you caused some damage, you ran into the garage door with your car, um, you started a fire in the backyard when you're grilling, things like that. Yeah, they can raise your premiums for things if you're causing damage to your property. But if your property damage was a result of a weather event, which is most of my clients that come to me, they can't raise your rates because of that. No. Also, they can't raise the rates on you as an individual, right? They have to set their rate increases based on like a geographic area or a zip code or a county. You know, it's based upon a a, a risk pool. It's not Miss Johnson filed a claim. We're going to go jack her rates up. You know, they can't do that. So um, that's not going to happen. I, I still get a lot of people that are concerned about, well, you know, I don't want to sue my insurance company. I've been with them for 30 years, right? They're my buddy. They're your buddy. They're not, right? The, the loyalty is only going one direction, right? You're you're paying your premiums on time. You're being loyal to them, but they're not being loyal to you. So I always tell clients, if you have to sue your insurance company, that's probably not the insurance company you want going forward. So I'm going to strongly recommend that you do switch and get a different insurance provider, Um either now or when the claim resolves, that's up to you, right? So, and there's other insurance you can get if you maybe have have an open claim, you have damages. There's insurance companies you can get, you know, that's kind of an insurance company of last resort, kind of like Cobra Insurance for health insurance, where you can get maybe for six months to a year till you can resolve your claim. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's, uh, those are common fears that people have, uh, but when I talk to them and explain that, they really understand, okay, um, you know, those fears are not not founded in anything and, and it's not something they really should be worried about. So, uh, but people have a lot of loyalty to their company. Um, I, I, I hear clients that, you know, say I've been with the insurance company for 30 years and, you know, they buy into the slogans and they buy into all that. But at the end of the day, if they're not going to live up to their end of the bargain, right? If, if a deal doesn't mean what it means to you, if they're not going to pay you for the damages that you owed after you paid your premiums faithfully, then that's not an insurance company you want to be doing business with. Yeah. So, like, I mean, you've been doing this a while. Like I said, you're in multiple states. Um, what What's the biggest problems that you face when you're hired as a, a by a, by a homeowner or property owner? Like, what what can PAs do better? What can homeowners do better from the get go to make your your job easier? If you do present something to court that, you know, Hey, this is going to be a slam dunk versus us, you know, really kind of fighting uphill. Right. Um, so documentation is key, you know, that, that written documentation, those photographs really making sure that you've documented everything about that claim process, all the phone calls you've had as a homeowner, who you spoke to, what they told you, that documentation is, is really what helps build your claim file on this side. The other thing is, you know, whether it's a public adjuster or a homeowner, you know, be open and honest with the attorney, right? If, if you've had a prior claim that was denied two years ago, let your attorney know that on the front end, right? There's not very much that's, you know, fatal to a claim 
if we know about it and we can address it. But if you don't tell your attorney about a prior claim you had where you got paid some money um, and you didn't make any repairs to your property, and that comes out later in the lawsuit process, right? That's going to hurt your claim. So if you're just open on the front end and you, you know, you tell us what's going on or any prior claims, you probably still are owed money for your claim that you have right now. But we just want to set that up and document that correctly, right? And a lot of times, you know, we do that by addressing that, right? You, we got to address the fact you had a prior claim and why that should not be held against you or why. If it is going to be held against you, why it's only a few thousand dollars or something like that, that should be instead of, you know, negating your entire claim. So, you know, it, I think that's the most important. It's just an open line of communication, right? We're all on the same team. Uh, the, the insured, the public adjuster, uh, your contractor, the attorney, you know, we're all rooting for a successful outcome. We're all trying to um, get a successful outcome on the claim. So we need to all recognize that we are part of a team and work together. Yeah. Well, and to kind of piggyback on, you know, what in particular, what can a homeowner do better? Right. And I, I can't help, but really stress having a good policy in place makes everybody's job easier, right? It gives the carrier less to say no to. And I know it may cost you a little bit more money to, to have some of these endorsements and things in place, but in the end, it can really save you a lot of money. Yeah, and if, if your agent comes to you and says, hey, I can save you a couple hundred dollars a year by having this exclusion or this endorsement yeah. added to your policy, probably don't want to do that, right? Yeah. Uh, we hold the insurance company accountable to the policy. But if that policy doesn't have any coverage, there's no coverage there. You know, so we, we can't create coverage where it doesn't exist. So you're you're spot on. I mean, Having a good policy on the front end and understanding what's covered under that policy, I think is, is key. Well, and, I, and, that, and that goes to the idea that, oh, well, these things aren't going to, what's the likelihood these things are going to happen to me? Or if something is done by a third party that, um, you know, the third party's coverage will take care of me. And that's, a, it's a, it's not a true mindset to have. And, and I've got a file right now that, you know, I came on board and um, expecting uh, to take care of it with his homeowner's insurance. Um, basically, what happened is this homeowner's sitting at home. Um, AT&T is working out in, in the neighborhood and they're doing maintenance on the lines. And um, this, con this third party contractor is hired by AT&T to go out and do the work. It's not on... Uh, this person's house. They're just out in the neighborhood doing general maintenance and they're out in his front yard and they got to dig up some of these lines to, to make some maintenance uh, or to work on some maintenance stuff. And they hit his sewage line and they didn't, they weren't paying attention or they didn't pull the right um, line locates or, or what, but they hit his sewage line and basically every single shower and toilet backflowed and, and overflowed into the house um, caused about just, just under $300,000 worth of damage is, is where my estimate was. Um, his carrier, and I believe it was Allstate, which they're known to have an overflow endorsement that you have to add on as additional coverage. And he elected not to take that coverage. 
And so it was pretty quick turnaround on getting a denial from them. And so then the homeowner was like, well, what do I do? And I was like, well, you're going to have to go after the third party, um, the third party's insurance. And there's a key, there's a few things here. Okay. Normally if it's a third party, the carrier can um, subrogate against that, against that company to go get, and they'll handle the claims process. But if you don't have the coverage to begin with, that carrier won't subrogate on your behalf. The, the key thing is you have to have the coverage in order for them to subrogate to somebody else. And in addition to that, in the state of Texas, and correct me if I'm wrong, they, a, a contractor doesn't have to have full replacement cost coverage. They can just have ACV coverage, which is actual cash value. So for those of you who don't know who, what that is, when whenever you do work, the, the carrier is going to depreciate a certain amount based on the age of the materials, wear and tear, how, how old it is, all that kind of stuff. And they're going to give you an initial payment, which is your ACV, your actual cash value. And then once you perform the work under a replacement cost value policy, that depreciation is recoverable. Okay. So in an ACV only policy, which is actual cash value, that depreciation is not recoverable. So right now, not only is he not collecting every dollar, but the third party's insurance is trying to depreciate at 30% which is ridiculous. Um, yeah. But he's getting, you know, only 75%, um, uh, 70, 75% of what's owed to him. And the idea that somebody else's insurance is going to take care of you is not necessarily going to be the case. And I think those two things are really important. You can't rely on somebody else's insurance and uh, they, your carrier won't subrogate on your behalf unless you have the coverage to begin with. I asked him to ask his agent how much that endorsement costs him a year. And I think it's like a hundred dollars a year is what that endorsement costs. So because he elected to save a hundred dollars a year on his, on his premium, he's now having to fight and do this the hard way. And it's a really hard lesson to learn. Yeah, absolutely. And so, you're right. It, you know, if it's a third party that negligently causes damage to your property under the law, they owe you the actual cash value. They don't owe you replacement costs. Um, and so if he had had that endorsement on his policy, he would have been a lot better off. Not only would he have had replacement costs, but he would have had additional living expenses. And then his insurance company could have paid out the claim. He could have been back in his home and then his insurance company could have gone to bat to go try to recollect and recoup that money. So. Well, and the ALE, the additional living expenses is a big one because those those aren't owed underneath the third party's insurance. And okay. if you have $300,000, $400,000 worth of damage to your home, you're going to be displaced while it's getting worked on. And um, those additional costs of living in a hotel, apartment, whatever, those aren't recouped. Right. Yeah. Those add up like crazy, man. But, well, man, I... I can't thank you enough for jumping on, man. And I, I appreciate you getting on here. And I think it was. Well, this seems like this was your, your hundredth one, not your first one. So um, <laughs> you, I enjoyed it and uh, look forward to, uh, to getting back on again. Let me know. And then we'll, we'll have some, some more conversations, but wish uh, you and your wife, nothing but success and hope this really takes off for you. I thank you for doing it. Yeah, no, I appreciate that brother a lot. And, um, you know, say hi to the family and if you, never, if you ever need anything, man, just holler at me.
Sounds good. Take care. Bye, buddy. I'll see you. Bye.